Hello, my name's Jeremy Gordon and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. It's very likely come to your attention that energy prices have been going up a lot. Oil, natural gas and in the UK our utility bills. As such, I'm particularly pleased to be joined on the podcast today by John Forster, who manages Impax's flagship £1.4 billion Environmental Markets Investment Trust. Impax, where John has been working since its early days in 2000, is a pioneer in environmental or ecological investing. Clearly, that's a very necessary growth area as we try to slow climate change. But if it was a lonely furrow in 2000, it's certainly not anymore. And Impax has repeatedly warned that the rush of money into this area is making their job as investors more difficult. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on. Well, maybe you can start by uh, telling us about what you do. It impacts environmental markets. What, what is it in a nutshell? Um, great. Okay, thanks. So Impacts Environmental Markets is a fund that aims to give investors exposure to growth in the markets for the cleaner and more efficient delivery of the basic services in the areas of energy, water, food and waste. Uh, it's a global fund investing in pure play companies operating across a whole range of environmental markets. So new energy, clean and efficient transportation, sustainable food, water, circular economy, smart environment. You can get an idea of the, the rich diversity of, of the opportunity set. Uh, otherwise, I'd just say it's you know the, we're mainly focused on growth and performance. That's, that's our, our focus. But in addition to that, an investment in the fund does deliver a significant net environmental benefit. Okay. And so, well, you've said there, but to be clear, it, this isn't just about renewable energy, as, as might spring to some people's minds. No, definitely not. I mean, you know, that's you know, in the early days, environmental markets were dominated by alternative energy, but now you know, it's a much richer, more diverse opportunity set. So energy, water, food, waste, you know, that, that kind of range of opportunities. Yeah. And in, in terms of your basic pitch to investors, I suppose, what, why invest directly in this space? Well, the main reason to invest is performance, right? We strongly believe that in order to address some of the challenges uh, in the global economy around resource efficiency, uh, addressing air challenges like climate change, pollution, that the companies that are providing the solution to these problems will grow faster than the global economy and that that faster growth would translate into better performance compared to global equities. So that's the main reason to invest as far as we're concerned. But, um, you know, as I said, um, you can attribute a net environmental benefit to investment in the fund. Um, so I do think you know, where people uh, put their capital to work makes a difference in the world. Um, we are participating in fundraisings, primary fundraisings that fund growth in these businesses. Um, we are engaging with these companies to help them get better, you know, to measure their environmental footprint, set targets and, and look to reduce their um, water use and you know, environmental footprint. So from a lot of different angles, um, an investment um, has good benefits, both financial and non-financial. Mm. Can I just push you on that point a bit about uh, investing in the fund, having a net environmental benefit? Um, I suppose, I, you know, I sometimes wonder for, for an equity fund as you are, public equities, what, what, you know, how does it actually kind of benefit the companies you buying their shares? How does it speed up 
uh, some of those positive uh, developments. Well, you can, you know, I guess it's debatable owning secondary shares. What difference does that make? But I, you know, I'd say there is a case for saying that, you know, your ownership stake in a company gives you some kind of entitlement to um, claim, um, you know, some of the benefits that that, that company is providing um, to the broader economy. So, you know, secondary ownership is, you know, I agree is a bit more limited, which is why, you know, participating in fundraisings, um, engaging with companies to um, provide a, you know, a bigger benefit is also kind of squarely within our remit. Yeah. And does that make sense? The, yeah, that does make sense. I mean, during, during the, particularly in the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic, um, we saw more companies, uh, you know, coming coming to raise equity or, on the secondary markets. Um you know, did, did you support some of your companies during fundraises in the earlier stages of the pandemic? Or, um, so I think in the early stages of the pandemic, we were very focused on uh, balance sheet integrity and making sure that our companies could make it through. And we always um, concentrate on well-capitalized um, businesses that have you know strong balance sheets. So um, I don't think there was a necessity to participate in any emergency fundraisings, but you know where fairly significant shareholders on uh, on the register of some of our companies and we're standing ready to participate as required okay um well you're 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 saying the main reason to invest is about performance and i <laughs> if i if if i, I will just read out some figures kind of uh, bearing out that you have been doing a good job on that front um so impacts environmental markets over 10 years has delivered about 412 percent return to shareholders which is far in advance of about 145 percent for the the msci world um now th this is the kind of flagship trust at uh, at impacts um but you also run an open-ended fund fund is, is that right john and, and can you just kind of tell us who your your colleagues are working on it with you uh yes that's right so impacts environmental markets is part of what we call the specialist strategy which invests globally across the full range of environmental markets in pure play small mid-cap companies uh, we've got a total of four billion of assets in the strategy and the two biggest vehicles are uh, impacts environmental markets which is around 1.4 billion pounds and then the open-ended variant um, impacts environmental markets ireland which is about a billion pounds so they're all run to the same set of targets um, and it's you know it's the same underlying product if you like so that's the product uh, in terms of people uh, bruce jenkin jones and myself have been working together for 20 years in impacts from the inception of the strategy uh, we were recently joined by photos hajimikalaikis as a portfolio manager for um, for the trust He's been at Impacts for, I think, seven years now and has done a fantastic job on researching new ideas for the portfolio, had really kind of grown into you know, his understanding of the portfolio overall. And um, so we felt it was time to recognize that contribution and, and bring him on as a portfolio manager. Okay. And is there an element of planning for the future in that or, or, or not, not so much? I think it's you know recognizing the contribution that he was already making and and mm. kind of bringing him um you know up to speed on that so that's that was the main reason for the change. Okay. Um well before we kind of circle back to talk about the portfolio in a bit more more detail 
as I alluded to in the intro, this is a, a topical area. Um, there's been a lot of debate about uh, whether Russia, of course, a major fossil fuel supplier invading Ukraine, could speed up the energy transition. What, what's, what's your, your take on that? I think it's, it's definitely the case that um, the tragic events unfolding in Ukraine are um, going to change the face of energy in, in global markets, and it, and it is definitely going to speed up the transition. It's been um, interesting um, to see that in the early days of the crisis, energy was not at all on the agenda because of the mutual reliance between Russia and Europe in particular. Europe gets about 40% of its gas from Russia. And so I think in the early stages, it was felt that this mutual reliance and dependency meant that it was it couldn't be on the agenda for change. Um, but the events that have been unfolding mean that um, that is changing very quickly. Um, so you've probably seen the Repower EU objective is to reduce our reliance on uh, Russian gas by two thirds by the end of 2022 and to take it completely out of the mix by 2030. So this is a, a massive upheaval and transition to be made. Um, it's definitely going to be complicated in terms of how do you how do you do that? How do you achieve that? Um, but it's, you know, it's going to have a, a number of building blocks, um, you know, choosing and finding alternative sources of gas. There's probably going to be more nuclear, but also importantly for us, there's going to be an increased opportunity both for renewable energy and energy efficiency. So the, the plan's talking about 80 gigawatts of incremental renewables by 2030 versus the prior plan and an acceleration of energy efficiency initiatives across the board as well. So, you know, it's, um, it's another upheaval um, where the trust is on the kind of winning or kind of beneficiary side providing the solutions. And um, well, I'm de definitely keen to talk more in a bit about those opportunities it's it's mm -hmm. going to create for you. Um, th there have been people saying for for a long time that they think the the energy transition um, is going to be hugely inflationary, and part of what we're seeing here already is um, say uh, you know the energy majors have already slightly curtailed their, their capex; they're spending a bit less on on getting oil out the ground, but as a society, we haven't really changed our behaviour. We haven't really changed our... The demand side of the picture hasn't changed. What, what, what do you think about that and, and this kind of inflation question around energy? Um, so the first thing I say is I'm not an oil and gas expert. No, <laughs> well, neither am I. It's the way I phrase my question probably <laughs> let you know. So we, but it is something that we've looked at uh, and obviously you know, investors have been asking our opinion on it as well. So mm. you know, is it inflationary? I, I think I'd say you know, not necessarily uh, in the long term, although it is likely to cause a lot of volatility in energy prices on the way through. Um, so if you kind of unpack it on the demand side of things, um, you know, demand is um, going to moderate um, the International Energy Agency, for example, is talking peak oil somewhere between the mid-20s and the mid-30s, 2030s, depending on government intervention. So you know, given everything we've just talked about um, in Russia and Ukraine, I think it's reasonable to assume you know, maybe the earlier rather than the later portion of that, of that time horizon. So as um, the electrification of vehicles accelerates and as we get 
um, through peak oil demand as as demand comes off the price can be very sensitive to uh, to that kind of marginal demand so that's the outlook for the demand side of things and then on supply um, my understanding anyway is that um, we have been through a long and deep down cycle in capex and investments in oil and gas my understanding is that we're turning a bit of a corner in there and and i think the other thing i'd say is that a substantial portion of oil supply comes from the national oil companies that are owned by governments that rely on it for tax revenues so they're low cost but also fairly price inelastic so they're probably going to keep on pumping and so i think the supply side we would expect to be um, robust and in the face of demand that's going to be moderating so you know i think there's reasons to believe that um it that the oil price may not sustain at a very high level um but the question is what are we replacing it with and is that more expensive right and and i think the the message is that the cost of technology in low carbon energy and and renewables is has come down a long way so renewables in a lot of cases um, is competing on a completely unsubsidized basis and can be the cheapest power available so it doesn't have to be inflationary necessarily yeah well that, that sounds like good news to me um maybe i can just quickly take you back to 20 years ago when you, you and bruce started managing this this strategy uh at a time when i, I think i'm right in saying um you know, oil companies were, uh, you know, among the most valuable companies in the world still in about 2000. Um, you know, wh wh when you first started talking about uh, this kind of investing to people, what, what what did they think? It's funny trying to think back 20 years. Um, <laughs> I think it was, <laughs> trying to remember that far back at this stage of the game. But um, I think in 20, 2002, when the trust launched, um, mm. we would admit it was very early days in environmental markets. They were small niche markets that were just starting to emerge and grow. We had a very small universe of 250 companies. Um, it was very dominated by alternative energy. Um, they were highly speculative. A lot of them were unprofitable. It was quite um, racy, to use a, a technical term. But I think, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what investors liked they you know they obviously liked the fact that impacts is a specialist in this area and this is all we do all day every day they could see the government targets starting to come into place um the com the technologies um and the business models starting to firm up so i think investors were intrigued and you know willing to give us a shot um so that was you know that's how it looked then obviously it's come quite a long way since <laughs> It has indeed. Well, I'm fast forward today and, uh, well, almost every big man asset manager in the last few years will have launched their own version of a climate fund or an energy transition fund or, or something like that. And at Impacts, um, as you say, this is your, your bread and butter, this, this wider universe. And you, you have warned that the amount of, of, of cash basically flowing into this space is almost starting to outstrip opportunities. Um, you know what, what what are your latest thoughts on that and the, and the risks there i wouldn't say it's outstripping the opportunities but it, it makes it you know even more important to have a diverse opportunity set and to be nimble and to have room to maneuver um so i think you know as i said we've done a lot of work over the years finding 
um, new uncorrelated opportunities within environmental markets, um, which give you new opportunities for growth. Um, it, you know, the diversification reduces the risk profile, and it just makes for a, you know, a healthier, a healthier portfolio. So um, our opportunity set has grown out of all um, proportion. Um, the 250 companies we talked about before has grown to 1,300. Um, we are, you know, three or four sectors. When we first started investing, we've now got 38 different environmental subsectors we're investing in. So um, I think that, you know, the size of the universe, the diversity of the opportunity set, um, is what helps us get get the good growth um, without. Um, the same amount of risk, and it helps us manage these valuation hotspots that that that, that our markets are prone to. Okay, and I suppose, well, you, you know, l looking looking today broadly, what uh, what markets that you look at are offering the better, best opportunities, and which you feel wh where are you still a bit worried about valuation? Yeah, I think yeah, in terms of valuation, the Areas that are exposed to this drive towards net zero have been where most of the challenge has been. So renewable energy and parts of the energy efficiency arena. So that's yeah. where um, valuations were getting a bit um, a bit overheated. I think we'd flagged that um, in the tail end of of last year. Obviously, we've with this great rotation that we're seeing this year um, out of quality and growth into value. Um, valuations have actually become um, much more sustainable across the portfolio. Um, so I think the valuation challenge has has abated somewhat um, across our markets. So that's oh, okay. how I feel about valuation now. So you're um, still a, a challenge, sort of but, but less than it again. was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you, that's right. Okay, so, so you feel like there's a bit more flexibility almost in your universe. Um, so I think that you know, the valuations across the portfolio are more in line with historical averages uh, the premium that we have to global equities is still elevated but but justifiable but at the end of the day i feel more comfortable about portfolio valuation and with as i say we're finding some great opportunities across across our markets yeah um so yeah sorry over to you oh well and you 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 mentioned that um uh, with, with this perhaps speeding up at the energy transition in Europe um, as a, as a result of the the Ukraine war, um, that that's that's going to create a big kind of upsurge in demand again, maybe in the direct renewables sector. Are you are you starting to look kind of look there a bit more? Um, we have been finding incremental opportunities in renewable energy we're particularly focused on the project developers who build own and operate uh, wind farms and solar parks we like the valuation value creation and but the kind of defensive growth profile of those businesses and we've been you know looking for um, ipps that bring something different so um, that's an area that we have um, been getting some incremental exposure to but i think um, a lot of those names have reacted to the situation in Russia and Ukraine, um, whereas if you look um, to the energy efficiency arena, um, which is going to be another prime beneficiary, um, we feel that those sectors have reacted less. So there's probably better opportunities in the area of, of energy efficiency across different verticals.
Okay, just to kind of bring uh, bring to mind, John, the kind the kind of companies and businesses we're talking about here. You know, can, can you outline, say, uh, a large utility that's de- developing uh, these renewable assets and 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 a name in the energy efficiency area as well? You know, um, wh- yes. who are you so investigate and why are you the... excited? <laughs> okay, so so one of the um... On the renewable IPP side of things, our biggest holding is called EDP Renovaves. Um, they, the things we like about them are they've got a very good diverse um, group of assets spread across different jurisdictions. They've got a big business in North America and also across different uh, countries in Europe. Um, they've got a, um, a strong track record. They have about five gigawatts of capacity um, under operation at the moment and a strong track record of developing projects. So they've got a aggressive goal to add, um, I think, 20 gigawatts in the next um, four or five years. Um, they've got the pipeline to deliver that. And um, that's what we're quite excited about is is the value creation from that. Yeah, so that would be a, a um, renewable company. name. Yeah. This is, thank you, John. This is a Portuguese company. It's listed company, in Portugal. much more yeah. global. Okay. Sure. Yeah, that's how right. How about exactly. on the energy efficiency side? Um, on the energy efficiency side, we're present across there's a whole whole range of different verticals. So there are areas like in in the buildings arena, it would include heat pumps um, and high efficiency lighting. Um, on the in the industrial arena, it would include industrial software to facilitate the industrial Internet of Things, which is a, another energy efficiency story. Um, in the digital infrastructure arena, we have um, renewable-powered, um, high-efficiency data centers. Um, we have, you know, power electronics and semiconductors that are also driving efficiency gains in in their sectors. So you can see it's um, quite a rich and um, diverse seam of opportunity. Mm. Do you want to talk about a name? You want a name? <laughs> yeah, what, 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 I suppose, yeah. What, what's your, your favourite name in that area or, or a name that you've been adding to? Well, actually, in the, in the UK arena, um, mm. there's a couple of names. One, which is probably known to everyone in and around the top 10, is, is called Spirax Sarco, mm-hmm. and they are a steam specialist. Um, so they send in their army of engineers into an industrial setting help the company understand how to make more efficient use of steam in their in, in their manufacturing process and then they sell them the equipment and the consumables to realize the plan um, so if you think you know what's going on in um, in russia ukraine uh, the need to be more efficient with the use of of gas and and, and steam is um, you know that's an area that should um, that's quite attractive to us basically so that's that's what they do. Um, that's a, um, a long-held company in the portfolio. And then more recently, um, we participated in a fundraising, actually, a primary fundraising for a group called Discovery um, with an IE on the end. And they're a specialist um, supplier of electrical components uh, that go into a range of industries, but particularly renewable energy, um, public transportation, and this industrial internet of things so it's um yeah that's a more recent addition to the portfolio uh, okay thanks and uh you, yeah. you've said before i think that you think uh 
changing consumer preferences is going to be an important legacy of COVID that could have an impact on your universe as well. How, how has that been creating opportunities? It's been fascinating to watch, I'd say, um, but consumer preference has really emerged as a, um, a new but very potent driver of growth in our markets. I think it originated in the VW Dieselgate scandal, um, which right. resulted in everyone you know, demanding this transition towards electric vehicles, right? So that was maybe the um, the biggest recent upheaval in in that side of things. But as as we've come out of COVID, it's there's been a you know more additions to the list of of demands from from consumers. So I think I would highlight natural ingredients as maybe the biggest amongst those so it's um you know basically making a transition away from um synthetic or fossil fuel derived ingredients into more sustainable natural alternatives so dsm um, in the portfolio supplies animal feed uh, made from natural ingredients that increases the uptake of nutrition reduces emissions and is is um you know, very incremental to the industries that it serves. And we have a, a range of other bio-ingredient, biochemicals businesses that are, are the likewise um, transitioning industries away from fossil fuel-derived chemicals in, into a more sustainable alternative. Okay. So and that's is, a couple is, of examples. Thank you. And is that would that apply to, uh, well, the food that we're consumers are eating as well? Um, not always. So you know, some of the bio-ingredient biochemicals companies are going more into industrial um, processes. So it's not we're not talking about what you're eating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the DSM, the animal feed. You know that those kind of opportunities are, are probably kind of more more food related. Okay. Sure. And um, well, uh, uh, something else I'm keen to talk about is that is that you you invest globally um in the in the portfolio but impacts also runs a dedicated uh, asia strategy looking at asian environmental markets although the exposure to to asia in your own portfolio is closer to say i think it's about 13 percent according to the latest fact sheet what what are the opportunities like in asia at the moment we definitely find asia a very attractive investment opportunity for for the trust and across environmental markets um, they've got a lot of challenges in, in that region. There's a lot of catch up on policy and you know, a lot of growth uh, opportunities to be had. Um, we do have, as you, you said, we've got about 13% exposure. I think I'd say that's meaningful um, mm. and it's in line with global equities. Um, and you know, if you think about end market exposure, where, where the companies are selling to, the, our exposure is more like 20% which is again um, in line with global equities. So it's, um, you know, we've got um, kind of in line exposure to the Asia Pacific region. Um, we'd like it to be higher, um, but I think what we've found is that Asia is slightly kind of dominated by larger, more diversified conglomerates, uh, which don't make it to our 50% minimum environmental exposure to be, have this pure play designation. So, um, that's you know we're we're definitely working hard with our team on the ground in Hong Kong. Um, we've got good exposure across a range of opportunities like industrial automation. Um, we own Giant, the uh, bike manufacturer, um, and you know um, 
Indra Prastra Gas being a natural gas distribution company in um, over in India that's addressing air quality in, in the New Delhi area. So there's you know there's a rich, um, diverse group of opportunities. Okay, and uh, we you, you mentioned the team on on the ground in Hong Kong. How about in in mainland China? I mean that that's somewhere where we we hear about both enormous pollution problems, but actually some progress with renewables and electric vehicles. I think they've made a lot of progress. Um, so I'd say if you reach back into the 2000, um, 2005, 2010, that kind of arena, um, the Chinese government had a succession of five-year plans that were targeting more and more um, environmental markets. So renewables, um, waste treatment, better water treatment infrastructure, um, expansion of the rail network so a lot of that work has happened um, and so you know those those investments which we did have have been have been realized so that's it's definitely still an opportunity but um, a lot of the heavy lifting in the traditional industries has already has already happened so we've, we've moved on elsewhere yeah okay that, that, thanks John um, well we, we've mentioned Spirex Sarco um, what about the UK can, can you discuss some of the you are, the other opportunities that you see in the UK? Um, so I think Spirax um, is the biggest one. Uh, we've got about 8% total exposure in UK listed names. Um, but I think Spirax and Discovery are probably the um, the bigger names on on that list. Yeah. Okay. And I suppose, well, I, I don't know if you can... I'm not sure this is a question about the portfolio so much, but th there has been a bit of disappointment that we, in the UK, maybe we've progressed comparatively well with the rollout of, of renewable energy. But, um, you know, th there's a lack of, say, wind turbine manufacturers or, or, or big battery companies I I in the UK. Has that, have you, can you give us any insight into that? Or is that a surprise, a, a disappointment? Or? Um. I'd rather not get too drawn into political statements on on policy. I I think you know I I would say that the complexity of um, policy in some environmental markets has been maybe an obstacle to um, growth and confidence in in some of these in some markets. Like if we look at think about renewables, for example. Um, so. But we do, you know, we still have holdings that are leaders in their in their space that are based out of the UK. Spirax probably being the, yes. the best example, and um, you know, we'll see where we go. You know, the um, the government is looking to encourage um, a domestic EV um, supply chain. Um, so let's let's hope that we can, you know, bring some of this um, capacity and and capability onshore. That would be great. Okay. Uh, f fair enough. Thanks. Well, last couple of questions about the portfolio, I, I suppose. You've mentioned that you, you look for these kind of pure play companies. You're, you, you don't want it to just be one unit of a company that, that, that's really acting in your core markets. Is, is that what means that in terms of your exposure, this is kind of more of a, a mid-cap trust? Um, you, you're unlikely to invest in truly giant companies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, it, it, there's a history here. I mean, when when we first started, these were small niche markets served by small cap companies. You know, now roll forward 20 years, these are you know larger mainstream 
um, market opportunities that are served by a, a kind of a, more of a kind of mid and small cap um, set of companies. Um, so there is, you know, that's why the, the mid cap bias, um, but still looking for small cap small cap opportunities. Um, you know, we do have a, a few names in the portfolio that more are more thirty thirty five billion dollars of market cap, but once it gets into um, this kind of large cap arena. Um, I think our feeling is that investors can do that themselves. And what they're looking to us for is these smaller, um, interesting, you know, diversifying holdings that they can't find anywhere else. So that's that's really what we're focused on. Okay, well, that's a nice clear message there. Um, I suppose we've we've talked about um, valuation in your sectors and some of the challenges there. Now, as the um, you're not the only. Um, London listed investment trust in this space, but you're uh, you're the largest by a long way and the most prominent, and you do have a long history doing this, and that that does mean that as interest in environmental investing has has, has grown, sometimes the the shares have moved up to trade a, a very large premium to to the value of the underlying portfolio, the net asset value. Can you can you kind of comment on that a bit and and what 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 well what you or the board have been doing about it really? It's definitely, um, yeah, good, good question. Um, so obviously, as you say, the interest in environmental markets has been strong. Um, IEM as a long-standing fund has has attracted a lot of attention. Um, so the premium um, that we had had been it traded at, on average six percent premium in 2021, um, but there were times when the premium was getting to more into the kind of mid-teens, right? So quite a a large premium. Um, the board had a um, clearly stated um, policy and preference that the share should trade around NAV in normal market conditions. Um, so we were issuing shares at a premium to, to manage um, to manage that premium and satisfy demand. Um, I think we issued um, just over £150 million worth last year. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the on the issuance side of things. Jump in, just to say. I mean, that, that that's a lot of sh- a lot of shares um, for the trust to to issue in one year. Um, but you, the managers as well, or, or, or perhaps impacts as a group, were were saying maybe that pace of issuance couldn't go on. Is is that right? Yeah, I think so. Last year's issuance was around twelve percent of shares outstanding. Um, you know, capacity is an issue in this strategy. We you know, we don't want to take on more manage more assets than we can manage and give people the the same product that they joined us for. So we we've got a limit of ten um, percent issuance in a given year, and we're trying to trying to manage to that. On the, so that's the messaging on on issuance. Okay, but now the the, the premium has come down a bit, hasn't it? Well, particularly in this year's volatility, um, it has. Yeah. So, um, what we saw um, when Russia crossed the border into Ukraine was obviously a lot of market upheaval, and the trust went to a small discount um, of around mid single digits. So, having been issuing a lot of shares at a premium, we were very keen um, as managers and board um, to do what we said we would do and stand behind the trust. So we were in the market. We did do a couple of small buybacks um, in that period of um, of extreme volatility. But it's it's a key message for investors that they you know, they don't have to worry about the emergence of a 
of a big discount. Okay. Thanks, John. Um, Well, I suppose a couple of questions looking more to the future now for, um, you know, you've mentioned how, as as you've managed this strategy over the last two decades, your number of end markets and their scope has grown. For for environmental investing, what 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 do you think the next frontier might be? You know, in five years' time, what what might we be talking about as the new opportunities? I think um, it's kind of here and now, but the first one would probably be the circular economy. We've kind of touched on it a couple of times, but I think you know what does this mean? It's it it touches all parts of the economy it's about efficient product design it's about the materials and manufacturing processes that you use it's about sharing economy um, business models during the life of a product and then it's about uh, recovery and recycling at the end Um, so we've got good exposure across those industries at the moment but i think it's a concept that's just being just starting to become embedded in the in the global economy and we think there's there's going to be a lot more opportunities uh, on that side of things going forward. Um, so equipment rental is a more recent addition, uh, oh, which, right. which has been very successful for us. So that's maybe that's the first one is circular economy, which is, is real now, but um, we think has got a lot of legs on it. Mm. Um, if you're talking the next frontier, <laughs> um, you know, slightly further out, I think carbon capture and storage and we would also argue hydrogen and hydrogen infrastructure. You know, these are frontier markets that are um, getting to, you know, more proof of concept and technology. Um, currently, very expensive, um, but with quite a lot of potential. So, you know, we're looking to understand the market opportunity, the the strength of the business model. Um, we are um, focused on profitable businesses. Um, we like to see. Um, a reasonable valuation we can get our heads around but um you know those are definitely areas we're spending time on as well okay so what once we see what businesses get a bit more established you you might well be investing in those areas too yeah that's right and we're doing a lot of research in 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 all of the above Mm, very interesting well i suppose that the the last question i wanted to to ask you john was um well, I think it was in 2015, 2015 so quite a number of years ago now, um, the famous Paris Agreement uh, uh, agreed to try to limit man-made global warming to well below 2 degrees uh, Celsius and preferably 1.5 degrees. Um, do you think we're going to make it? Um, I think we're making good progress <laughs> towards this goal. And I was um, there's been a lot of studies that come out um, from the International Energy Agency, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So the, I think the most recent numbers I could see were that the implementation of policies that are currently in effect, that are, that are law, um, that would leave us with 2.6, 2.7 degrees of um, climate change by 2100. So that's obviously not enough. Um, secondly, if all of the 2030 targets were met, so if people translated all their goals into policy and executed, that would get us to 2.4 degrees of temperature change. And if everyone um, fulfilled their net zero targets and obligations, that might get us to 1.8 degree. So um, I think, you know, we have to recognize um, the very substantial efforts of governments and progress that's being made. Um, But I would say um, 
we're not quite there yet, in my opinion. And so it's very important what what is done in the next 10 years. I think they're going to be pivotal to establishing the trajectory of um, of action and and climate change. So it's, you know, I think by far the cheaper long term option is to act aggressively now rather than have to cope with the consequences later. Okay. Well, th- thanks very much, John. A, a clear, a clear message there. I think uh, that's all we've got time for. So, last thing remains to say is, well, th- thank you very much for for joining me on the podcast, and good to learn more about impacts. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. All the best. Thank you. And uh, last thing to say from me is, thank you very much for listening at home, and please look out for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts soon.